This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The Door War was a little-noted and admittedly ill-conceived attempt at securing liberty for the people of Rhode Island. And though the war failed, the ideological fight for liberty there continued, and leading that fight were many women largely forgotten by history. Anthony Kamegna, assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org, comments. In a previous podcast, we discussed the Door War, which uh, people can... Uh, learn more about in in that episode with you. But uh, this gives us an opportunity, at least, to talk about some important women in history and learn about uh, how important women before suffrage were doing things that were uh, critical and sort of moved the needle. So Frances Whipple is one of these people. Mm -hmm. Uh, What should we take away from her experience and her struggle? Well, um, I guess let me let me first say that uh, while I was in graduate school uh, several years ago, starting the topic uh, for my dissertation, I was picked the Locofoco movement, uh, a libertarian movement that had not been studied, something that had been buried uh, in the historical literature. Um, and a movement that spanned many decades that I thought was worthy of a revival. Uh, and as I started working on it, I found, very unexpectedly that women were a key force, uh, at sometimes the key driving force in that movement, uh, which kept alive the most radical ideas from the Enlightenment, from the American Revolution throughout the 19th century. So uh, women's movements were extremely important, uh, not only for locofocalism, but for the classical liberal tradition. Um, And in the Door War in particular, women were extremely important. Um, Now, just to refresh listeners' memories uh, from our last episode, the Door War was a result of the lack of constitutional reform in Rhode Island from 1663, when King Charles II originally issued the colony's charter. The charter remained the state constitution through the revolution, through the 1790s, uh, and by 1841, most of the white male population of the state was disenfranchised because the charter required landholding. You had to own a certain dollar value's worth of land in order to vote. Well, since Rhode Island was a heavily industrialized state by then, most people uh, who were becoming new voters, either coming of age or moving into the country, did not uh, own land. And so the number of voters steadily dwindled until it was below 50%. And uh, some argued, well, this is no longer a republic. And so as we talked about before, there was a movement to reform the Constitution of Rhode Island from below, if you will. A spontaneous People's Convention was called. They uh, drafted and ratified and submitted to a vote a people's constitution that addressed many or most of the issues that the populace had with the state constitution. Uh, But the charter government refused to give way. We have a standoff. Um, The military efforts of the Dorites fail. uh, And it doesn't look like there's going to be successful revolution in Rhode Island. Now, the, the Rhode Islanders really wanted to test the idea of the sovereignty of the citizen or the individual, uh, as opposed to state sovereignty or the sovereignty of any particular existing political class, 
right? The constitutional order that exists is not sovereign. The individuals that are ruled over by that constitutional order are sovereign, and they have to agree to the order for it to be legitimate. Um, well, since the military efforts failed, um, since uh, the Rhode Islanders did not have as much of a stomach as they might have hoped for a revolution, um, it appeared to many that, well, all of the steam by the time Dorr was exiled and all of his cabinet and his other governing officials were in jail or exiled by the end of the summer, 1842, it seemed like the movement might die then and there. Um, and then uh, the core of women libertarians, or uh, in this case, loco foco Dorites, as they were called, um, the core of women really rose to the fore and took the movement forward. Uh, so this started with groups like the, the Suffrage Ladies of Providence, the um, Providence Ladies Suffrage Association, different uh, uh, variables thereof. Um, and uh, you know, different uh, associationist groups, voluntary associations of one kind or another made up primarily of women. Um, they started to pop up all around the state, not just for the constitutional angle, but to relieve families whose uh, husbands and brothers and fathers, you know, those figures had been thrown in prison. So uh, all these women's organizations start to collect money for the relief of those families. And in the process, they really take the movement in new directions. Uh, they don't want to plunge the state into civil war if uh, it's possible to avoid it. They really want to get the message out. Um, they want people to change their ideas, to change their hearts and minds about what uh, a better country or a better state of Rhode Island would look like. Um, and so they, they really start uh, to change the focus from you know, arming people and forming up in mass into military companies to, to take state property. They shift the focus from that end um, to controlling the language of the debate. So for example, now suffragists who would turn away from door and go back to the landholders and their constitutional convention and work with them, they were traitors. Right? So they start to use the language to uh, sort of, um, uh, let's, not, let's not say harass uh, their voting men into compliance, but to suggest to them very strongly what path they should take. Uh, that if you get involved in this, this new attempt to buy off the Dorites, right, uh, then you're a traitor. Now the thinking was, look, we already made the sovereign, real people's constitution of Rhode Island. We already voted on it. We passed it. Door is the governor. That's the government of Rhode Island. And if you guys, if you men who abandoned Door, then go back to the landholders, hat in hand, and say, hey, we'll, we'll come to your constitutional convention. We'll vote on your constitution if you give us a few bones. You are traitors against the proper constitution of Rhode Island that the people actually uh, approved. So, you know, we see this, this attempt to sort of change the language and to urge men to action um, throughout the Door War. Uh, people loved, women, women loved Door, and they were magnetically drawn to his cause. Uh, people compared him to Washington. 
Um, in his correspondence, there are love letters sent to him. People are naming their children after him, which one friendly newspaper said that it was unfair for parents to uh, place that burning plague spot upon the brow of innocence by naming him after Dorr. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, people were enamored with him, especially women who sort of saw him as a manly figure out there really uh, uh, fighting for his rights. Um, but, <laughs> you know, this, this was not really seen through um, because most of the Dorites, the men, didn't actually have the stomach for what they were doing. We said before the, the military effort fell apart and pretty farcically at that. It was kind of a ridiculous show. Uh, <laughs> Anne Parlin, who was the woman who uh, started the uh, re- positioning of the Dorr War from a military effort to an ideological effort. Um, she started the clam bakes, the political speeches and fairs. Uh, she was one of the main organizers. And Parlin wrote that uh, our husbands have been prisoners of war, and now we are ready to be so. Uh, she said the Algerines, that is the government of Rhode Island. They called them the Algerines, by the way, because they, they said their uh, rule of law was as tyrannical as the day of Algiers, the, the leader of the pirate state, basically, in, in North Africa. So she said, the Algerines conclude we are rather, rather treasonable characters. We intend to remain so. We bear our suffrage badges at all times in open daylight. We are doing all that women can do. And she didn't really mind using some of the most radical language you could probably imagine. Um, you know, last night we saw a presidential candidate say that they may not accept the results of an election, right? And, and people are kind of shocked by that. <laughs> it's not something that you hear too often. Um, well, Parlin said that uh, if Dorr was able to raise another army, with his government, she said, I will pledge myself to lead the army to death or victory. And she said, if, if Congress didn't help them out, if there was no national political coalition willing to uh, assist Rhode Islanders in acquiring their political rights, uh, she, she said that there would be a mass women's movement to make sure that it happened. Um, now, there are many reasons that that didn't happen that maybe we can get to later, but this was her vision. Uh, for how to reform the state and what that would mean for the rest of the country once uh, Rhode Island really adopted the view of the uh, sovereignty of individual citizens, not any constituted political class. She said, uh, I'll not be a silent spectator on behalf of our men who are valiant in peace but cowards in war. And uh, it's funny, if you look at the testimonies of men who did join Dora's army, a lot of them did it mainly to impress women in their villages. Um, William Mason, an 18-year-old man, said, I should not have gone to Chipachet had not the women persuaded me to do so. Uh, Clark Smith, a young man in Albion Village in uh, Lincoln, Rhode Island, he said most of the women in his village were in favor of Dorr, and some talked of pant putting on pantaloons and going to his aid, which recalls visions of the French Revolution. 
Um, they had a good deal of influence with the men, he said, kept up a continual talking, should pity the man who remained at home among them, should rather remain in prison than contend with them myself. So you can imagine what some of the scenes were in these towns where you have cohorts of women who are so motivated uh, to support this cause because they see the principle of universalism that every individual has the sovereign right to govern themselves and only when they expressly delegate that authority uh, to a constituted body can that body rule over them. That's a powerful message for women in the early 19th century. If you're a libertarian, if you believe you own yourself first and all the all other things come after that, it's mm -hmm. uh, quite a noble thing for uh, women to manipulate men for that purpose. Oh, well, yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are shades of manipulation that would cross a moral line, but uh, simply urging people to do the right thing seems like a good way to affect reform, frankly. Um, Clark, Clark Smith, he said, uh, <laughs> he said he went to the camp to make a show, made a poor show, in case of actual battle, meant to sneak off myself. So what, you know, what does that tell you about the, the steadfastness, the belly for revolution that the men of Rhode Island had? And it was their votes at stake here. Right, um, but the the women who who saw this more as a an ideological matter, it's more of a cultural issue almost uh, that we that we have to assert the principle culturally that we as individuals have the right to select our own governing institutions. So Francis Whipple at this time, uh, you mentioned in our last chat that following all of these events of the the Door War in. Uh, Rhode Island, that she uh, became a spiritualist. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. what is that? What does that mean? What is to put that into context of uh, why is that a notable thing? Okay, so spiritualism in the 19th century was sort of like the the new religion. Now, there were plenty of new religions in the 19th century. Mormonism, for example, new quintessentially sort of originally American religion. Spiritualism is uh, one of these, although it had its origins, I believe, in Victorian Britain at the earliest. Um, but it quickly came across the Atlantic and, you know, uh, probably reached its heights in the early 1860s. We've heard, maybe, that uh, Lincoln hosted seances in the White House, uh, as did many other famous figures of the day. They, they got involved in this thing. They, uh, you know, it's this curious mix of Victorian science and uh, old religious traditions, uh, old ideas about spirits and ghosts grafted onto a very new vision of science uh, and the natural forces that make the world work the way it does. So spiritualists looked at something like the telegraph, for example, this new, very almost magical uh, technology to transmit thoughts across the world instantaneously. Uh, it could take your thoughts out of your brain, transmit them into electricity, and shoot it across space instantaneously. Um, and, you know, they, they looked at things like this and they started to investigate electricity as a natural force and magnetism and all of these things. And they thought there's, some th there's something with these natural forces that connects uh, the spiritual world and the natural world together. They're one and the same thing. So all of these, these uh, uh, things like ghosts that we might think are transcendental, they, they uh, arise outside of nature, they're different from the physical world that we can study scientifically. 
the spiritualists thought, well, that's that's really off base. Um, but somehow they're connected. So maybe we can't scientifically examine spirits, but we can uh, uh, induce their arrival somehow by following particular patterns in, in seance, right? So, you know, you get together, you say your words, you do your little, your ritual and incantations, and suddenly the spirit takes control of your body. And you're Francis Whipple, and you're in the middle of the seance, and somebody starts talking about all these old ideas that you used to have during the door war and how they're really the things of the future. And it's about time we revive them and start making this world now, you know? And that, uh, as Lois Weisbrooker is, was a, in the generation or two of women spiritualists after Francis Whipple, uh, Weisbrooker, we have some of her lecture material on libertarianism.org. Um, Weisbrooker uh, said that she communed with the wise ones of the ages, and that's how she was able to divine her wisdom and her libertarian, feminist, political philosophy. Well, you know, according to these people, the you know, I, look, I'm a down-to-earth modern <laughs> atheist, historian, empiricist, you know, all those sorts of things. I don't believe that these people actually spoke with spirits. But it meant something to them. These experiences, I think you have to treat them as real for the individuals uh, uh, in the past. Um, and for his, as historians, what we can do is find the meaning in this. What did, what did these encounters, these supposed encounters with ghosts, tell these people about their world? And how did they use these encounters to sculpt their world? Well, the way that Francis Whipple and Lois Weisbrooker and other people used spiritualism uh, was a, a, an individually empowering set of beliefs. So spiritualism was this new religious philosophy that said anybody can be a priest, if you will. Anybody can commune with spirits. You just have to figure out the right sort of process to do that, the right incantations or rituals or you know the right interactions with nature, basically, that will draw these spirits to your presence and help you commune with them. So now, you know, there's no question of rising your way through the ranks of the hierarchy and the priesthood uh, or making your way through the chain of command. Spiritualism levels the playing field of, you know, who can interact with the spirit world and interpret their words and put them into action in our world. Uh, anybody can do that. Man, woman, black, white, children, the elderly, whoever. Uh, didn't matter what language you speak, what religion you are. You know, it's completely level playing field. Um, so it's a very empowering thing. Uh, for example, during the Civil War, Francis Whipple <laughs> uh, channeled the spirit of one Colonel E.D. Baker, who was a Union colonel killed at uh, Balls Bluff, Virginia, in October 1861. Uh, well, Whipple was giving a funeral oration while she was channeling Baker's spirit, okay? So she was in California channeling E.D. Baker's spirit, and she gives a, his own funeral oration because he'd been, recently been killed in battle. She, so she uh, channels his spirit, and then he's giving his own funeral oration through her voice, right? That's the scene we have here. Well, he's an abolitionist. And, he and so has Francis Whipple always been an abolitionist. And he talks about the need for, to, to use the war opportunity to abolish slavery and to make advances for liberty 
in such a terrible time. And he's the first prominent politician in the West Coast to advocate abolition as a spirit through the voice of Frances Whipple, a woman who would not get a vote until well after her death, right, had she stayed alive. So uh, spiritualism is a very clear, very interesting way that women were able to seize history uh, by the agency, if you will, um, and make it their own without having to consult men, without having to go through any constituted powerful bodies, uh, without needing a vote, without needing to even agitate for political involvement. Um, they grab the world, shape it, and make it their own. In this particular case, or in these cases of, of seances and speaking on behalf of uh, historical figures, it's almost as if they're able to assume an authoritative stance without any authority actually being given to them and then say what they think needs to be said. Yeah, yeah. They... Uh you know, here they, they have personal connection with these spirits, right? Supposed direct connection with spirits that they get their information from. Um, they don't have to go through any, any intermediary, any hierarchy. Um, and they really are sort of reviving an older tradition of uh, women's involvement, um, which is the production of history. So in the Jacksonian period, in the antebellum period, historians have identified dozens and dozens and dozens of amateur and professional women historians who wrote hundreds of books of history. And, you know, writing history allowed women to construct their own version of the world. They allowed them to understand the world for themselves, to construct their own narrative of it, which centered around them, you know, their own role, women's role in history and issues that are more important to them. Um, writing history empowered women to give their own explanations for why the world was the way it was. Um, it let them uh, give their own critique of things. Uh, so they, they didn't just receive the world as is, right, as given to them by, by uh, their birth, but they were able to take it and um, uh, critique it by writing history. Um, they didn't have to accept it simply as given. And they made their own positive, really radical contributions to shaping the world uh, by writing history, by teaching future generations uh, what happened in the past, how it affected the present, and how we might go about changing things for the better in the future. By writing history, they could really uh, express a kind of independence that women had never been allowed through merely you know, political processes uh, of getting involved in the world. Um, and, you know, to some extent, we do, we do women's history a serious disservice when we boil it down simply to politics. Uh, historians often look at women's history as before Seneca Falls and after Seneca Falls or b before the suffrage movement, after the suffrage movement. Uh, first wave feminism is sort of your Susan B. Anthony's who are all about getting the vote. Once the vote is gotten, well, now we have women in history, right? They've become part of the state, and so undeniably women are history's agents now. They've joined men in, in control of government, so they're, they're in the history books. Well, that's not how things actually work. 
women always had agency before they had the vote. They had a different kind of agency. They exercised different sorts of power. So what we need to do is understand how different exercising different kinds of power have different impacts on the world um, and different impacts on uh, how we might see a movement across time. You know, second wave feminism was less narrowly about politics and more about sort of a general sense of equity, equal treatment of women before the law. All laws, whatever, not just voting, but all laws should treat women equally. Um, and now in the third wave, feminism seems to be much, much more culturally involved um, about changing our narratives of different things, you know, addressing uh, broad concepts like rape culture. Um, and uh, if, you, if you simply think about women's history as the vote or involvement in politics, uh, you, you wipe away centuries and centuries of women's involvement in the world and shaping it to be what it is. Um, and I think that does a disservice to those women by ignoring their actual histories. Uh, but it does disservice to our ability to continue talking about women's role in the world, uh, women's role in libertarianism. Um, we're so quick, uh, I, I hate to say it, but libertarians were so quick to, to simply assume that our movement is overwhelmingly male and, uh, you know, therefore we're not too concerned with what women have to say or what their issues are. Um, but if we understood the history of our own uh, tradition and movements better, we'd see that, uh, you know, they might, many women might not be in the Libertarian Party or involved in partisan politics or, you know, concerned with libertarianism exactly as libertarian men have been for the last 50 years. Uh, but perhaps we need to be having different discussions. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.